Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm your host, Jacqueline Ganon. Today, I'm talking with Margaret Coker, the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is a nonprofit investigative news source that covers coastal Georgia. Margaret has worked as a reporter for more than 20 years and has covered stories from 32 countries on four continents. And she's also my former boss. I interned at The Current in the summer of 2021, and I learned so much during that time, so I'm thrilled to bring Margaret's wisdom to The Lead. Today, we'll be talking about her time reporting internationally and bringing that experience to fill a news vacuum in coastal Georgia. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. Now, here's the lead. Hi, Margaret. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. So I usually start with going back to the beginning. I'm wondering when you first realized that you wanted to be a journalist. Those many, many years ago. So I grew up in a military family and we we moved all over the U.S. Uh, I had a opportunity when I was in high school to go on a summer adventure. And it was an exchange program whereby children of U.S. military officers go to what was then the Soviet Union. And I had a chance to spend eight weeks there. I was away from my parents for the first time. I was outside of the U.S. for the first time. And I got to know regular people. Um, and when I was growing up during the Cold War, there was a lot of propaganda about what, you know, who the Russians were and what kind of enemy they were. And then when I had a chance to talk to normal people, I thought to myself as a 16-year-old, oh my gosh, I really understand what the word propaganda is now. And that light bulb went off in my head. And I came home and I started telling stories about what I had learned and what I had seen and basically reporting on on my trip. And that's when I realized I wanted to be a journalist. Yeah, I love that idea of connection and kind of breaking down those stereotypes a lot of people have. And that leads quite well into my next question. So during your career as a journalist, you've covered stories from 32 countries on four continents, which is incredible. One of those was Russia. Um, so how did you become a foreign correspondent? And that kind of sounds like a big question, but what were those first steps that you took to get into reporting internationally? Yeah, it was uh, definitely my dream as I was getting out of college that I wanted to report internationally because at the time there was so much going on. The world was changing um, overseas. The Soviet Union had broken apart. There was this little thing called uh, the Afghanistan Civil War that was building into Al-Qaeda, like everything was moving. And I graduated from college. I did not go to J school. I never took a journalism class. But I wanted to be a journalist. And so how do you break into the business? My marketable skill that I had with my liberal arts degree was that I was fluent in Russian. And so I applied for freelance jobs and uh, somebody accepted me. And I decided I was going to go someplace where no one else was covering, like go to a vacuum, become the journalist that everybody who needs news from that part of the world is going to have to call and rely on and start hustling. That's that's basically it. I got myself overseas. I took my, my graduation money and paid for that trip to just go. You know, I had a string lined up. It's what we used to call freelance um, assignments. And I went to Kazakhstan. And I lived in Kazakhstan for a year and a half. I had uh, clips. I got, you know, my byline published. And in service of paying off my student loans and actually, like, understanding you know, how I'm going to make this all work and make this uh, a career instead of just an ego-driven uh, kind of passion project. 
I cycled back from Kazakhstan to a full-time job uh, in Washington, D.C., and um, went back overseas soon after that. I love that kind of bravery of just getting yourself somewhere and going. I'm sure that was very scary, not knowing. I assume you didn't know many people in Kazakhstan, if any, when you went. And I love that idea of just going and getting yourself somewhere and kind of learning it more as a trade instead of, you know, sitting in a classroom. Uh, journalism is the kind of apprenticeship. I mean, as long as someone wants to take a chance on you, I like I dreamt big and I wanted to dream big, but I also understood that my dream job wasn't going to come right away. So there are things you do in service of a career while you're and understanding and being humble about being, you know, having to learn on the job. And you learn lots of different skills being a journalist, which is one of the highlights of the profession. Yeah, that's why I think those things like student media and internships are so important. And like my internship at The Current, I learned so much during that summer. And I love that kind of role that more experienced reporters can play as mentors to aspiring journalists. So in September 2020, you published your book, The Spymaster Baghdad. Can you tell me about what that book is about and what inspired you to write it? And was there kind of a point in your reporting that you realized like this should be a longer story? Yeah. So almost 20 years to the day that I took my first freelance assignment, I became the New York Times's Baghdad bureau chief. And so most of my 20 years was as a foreign correspondent, it turns out. While, while I was overseas, uh, I was asked all the time by American friends and Americans in general, like, why don't you write a book about yourself? You have such an amazing life. And I never actually wanted to do that. I never wanted to be the star of my own book. I didn't think that my story was actually as important as the stories that I was trying to cover well. So when I returned to Baghdad, I'd been reporting there back and forth since 2003. When I went back there for the New York Times, I had you know just an observation. Like I knew the way that this town had been in great turmoil over the 15 years since the war on terror began. When I landed in Baghdad again in 2016, I saw an entirely different town. And one of the things that was so different was that it was safe for the first time in a generation. I started asking very simple questions like, who has cracked the nut? Who has been able to make this town safe? Who has been able to stop terrorist bombings in the middle of a city that used to have you know, random acts of terrorism multiple times a day. And so from that open-ended question, that's how I got to the nub of the story about the spy master of Baghdad is about an elite group of Iraqi counterintelligence officers. The original reporting I did about that organization was for the New York Times. It was a front page story. I mean, it was a story I'm very proud of. It was a story that took a lot of um, investigative work. It also was a story that I got to spend a lot of time uh, writing in a narrative style instead of just in in general reportage. And it was gripping. Um, it went viral. It was the best read story on the New York Times website all weekend long. It had an immediate impact in that the families that I was writing about um, actually got uh, solutions to some very, very critical problems they were facing. And people wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. I had lots of fights with my editors at the New York Times about the length of the story. Uh, it ended up to be about 3,000 words, and I wanted it to be about 5,000 words, and they wouldn't let me write it long. So I already knew that I had more material in service of a better story and a deeper story, 
and the success of the story in terms of the impact that it had and the readership that it had is just one of these life once in a lifetime kind of moments where you have something so exclusive and so extraordinary that you're able to report. Immediately, I had book agents and Hollywood agents and producers reach out to me saying, we want to turn this into something else. Yeah, I think there's so many good things just in that one story about like starting with the simple questions and not giving up when you find something interesting and those impacts for those families that you mentioned. And also just kind of knowing your story, like you said, you knew it had enough to be longer and you made that happen. So I think that's wonderful. And I've also read the book and I thought it was fantastic and I would recommend it. So after uh, your international experience, now you're the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is a nonprofit investigative news outlet that covers coastal Georgia. Um, And I was lucky enough to intern there in 2021. So I'm curious what inspired you to found The Current and can you talk about that origin story? I just uh, mentioned how long I was um working as a reporter overseas. It was fantastic to, you know, be um, a first-hand witness to a lot of history and to tell Americans what our government was doing abroad in their name, especially during the war on terror. But my husband and I, we have a house in Savannah and we had our house for over a decade and we didn't live in it because both of us were um, working overseas. So in the ideal world, I wanted to figure out a way to make Savannah my full-time gig and my full-time home. And so the problem with that, really, there was really no option for me to come home to Savannah because there wasn't ambitious journalism being practiced in this part of of the state. And that news vacuum was real. um, And I understood that the news vacuum was actually quite impactful to a lot of other people's lives. I came home here in 2019 because I had my book deal and I was here writing my book. And so I was having deeper conversations with people in the six counties here in coastal Georgia, understood there's a lot of dissatisfaction uh, and a lot of want, like a lot of desire to have better news. And then my book manuscript was done and it was 2020, the beginning of 2020. And in February, 2020, down the road from me in Brunswick, Georgia, A young man named Ahmad Arbery went out for a Sunday jog and he was hunted down and murdered by three white vigilantes. And nobody knew what had happened to him. Nobody knew that this was a hate crime for over 74 days, in large part because there's no local in-depth journalism here. And that's why we founded The Current. We wanted to revive uh, watchdog investigative news for our part of the state. Um, we understand it to be a matter of life and death. We also understand as you know, the lessons of 2020 is that you know, if we're going to make our country the more perfect union that we all desire, we need better facts and we need to rebuild trust in local news. And we need to be civically engaged in order to um, come together and solve our common problems. So that has become the mission of The Current. Such important stuff that you mentioned, just the whole mission of journalism and why it's important. And kind of along those lines, what are some of the most impactful stories that The Current has covered, whether that means readership or creating change in the community or just feedback from residents saying, like, I now know about this issue? In The Current's three years of, of, of publishing, you know, we are really proud of the work that we have done in Brunswick and Glen County. We didn't break the news news that Ahmad Arbery was murdered. But what we have done is hold lots of local agencies uh, responsible um, and local agencies accountable 
So for instance, we did a year long investigation in 2021 into historic bias of the Glen County Police Department and how over-policing and uh, racially motivated policing has targeted black residents of Brunswick and Glen County. Those stories led to a wholesale change in the policing culture. There's new protocols put in place, new anti-racism and, and discriminatory bias training there. And those are the things that matter, right? In Changing one person's life is amazing. Changing a culture of the of a way that a police department works is, is another thing altogether. I love those examples and they will be linked in the show notes so listeners can read those. And so The Current is a nonprofit and that's something that's becoming more and more common just in this ecosystem of declining legacy newsrooms that we're seeing. So more broadly, can you talk about why nonprofit journalism is important, especially in our current media system? You know, when I was deciding to, uh, I think, change my life from being a full-time journalist to a media executive and journalist. Founding any business is something quite hard. Founding a news organization in a time and place when Americans don't trust news is something else altogether. So nonprofit journalism to me, like writes all of the wrongs that I've felt throughout my career working for commercial news organizations, big news organizations like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, where I work, they, they produce extraordinary journalism that, that also can change lives and change our country for the better. But at essence, the people running those news organizations aren't, are there to make money. If there is a reporting team that doesn't make a lot of money, if there is uh, stories that don't get a whole lot of clicks, those are deprioritized. And that's what commercial businesses do. This change in US culture from you know morning newspapers to 24 hour news cycles, you know, there isn't breaking news, there isn't quality news that happens 24 hours a day. And so what gets put onto our airwaves now is more analysis or opinion or discussions that aren't actually grounded in facts all the time. And what we see, especially in Georgia, is that you know, disinformation is rife, but also the idea of all of the inequalities that we have in our state, there isn't equal access to high quality news because high quality news costs money. And to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, you have to have money. And that to me is wrong. To me, I think that high quality facts, high quality information, high quality local news should be a public good uh, and not a for-profit commodity. And that is at the essence why nonprofit news matters. When a community comes around and says, we value this and we're going to pay for it, it allows for a um, extraordinary amount of editorial freedom and independence where we can ask our readers what's important to their lives and cover those stories rather than ask advertisers what's important for them and shape coverage around that. When you want to rebuild trust in journalism when you ask readers and your neighbors and your communities what they want and you're able to deliver that and have this immediate feedback loop where journalists are members of the community they're covering, the community reads about their problems in the newspaper or you know, on the online news site, and then everybody understands that we're all in this together again. And everyone understands that, that journalists actually are forces for good and not forces for evil. So yeah, especially with 
social media and disinformation, like you said, when the bad stuff is free and easily accessible, you have to counter that with good stuff that is also easily accessible. And I love that idea of returning it to the community because that's what journalism is all about is serving the public. So as you mentioned, you've kind of moved into more of a role of a media executive, but at the same time, you're still reporting and writing articles. So how do you balance the work between those roles being a leader and a reporter in the newsroom? I think the only way that that balance happens is that the rest of your life goes out of balance. I don't know the last time I I worked in eight hour day since I founded The Current. So that's something to be aware of. You know, if you want to do it all, something else in your life has got to give. Um, for me, you know, that's worthwhile because to get a startup off the ground and, and make it work, you need to, that becomes your baby, that becomes your obsession, that becomes um, more than your day job. It's your evening job as well. So that's the hard, cold hard facts. How do I do it all? I mean, if I didn't have 20 years experience in writing breaking news or being able to write cleanly without, you know, needing a whole lot of editing, being able to multitask, you know, these are skills that, that, that journalists learn on the job. If you don't have a curiosity about life, if you don't have a curiosity about the places that you live, those are the kind of soft skills, I guess, that it's hard to teach a journalist. Um, learning how to write quickly, learning how to process information, learning how to get good quotes and spell right. Those are the things that actually help save time when you are trying to do multiple things throughout your day. Yeah, I think it's important to be, you know, honest and transparent about all the work that goes into quality journalism. So I think that's really valuable for people who are interested in the field and looking to get real answers. And so I appreciate that. And also the importance of those fundamentals that lets you just do things quickly and not rushing yourself to, you know, you're, you can't have 20 years of experience after one year. No, no. And I, what I haven't said that I think is actually as vital is confidence. There really is no room for imposter syndrome anymore. You have to trust what you know, and you have to trust yourself and trust that you have high standards and that you're bringing people along with you and, and instilling those high standards and work habits with them as well. That rolls really well into my last question, which is, is there any advice that you haven't already mentioned that you have for aspiring journalists? There's a lot of different kinds of journalism. The kind of journalism that I have chosen to dedicate my life to is you know, investigative. And that has its own rigors and its own processes and a lot of those a lot of those things take time to learn but in service of any good journalism whether you're writing about lifestyle issues whether you're writing about sports whether you're writing about politics you need to figure out a discipline for yourself in your writing process you need to know that that your editors are always going to be rushed and as much as they want to help you learn you also have to be open to learning if you have an editor who tells you that they only want you to turn in 500 words, be respectful of your editor. Turn in 500 words, not 5,000 words. If you need help reaching out to a source or getting someone to talk to you, ask your editor for help. Don't wait until the last minute because that does no one any good. You are stressed and anxious. Your editor gets frustrated. So it's really important to figure out a a mutually codependent relationship with your editor. Treat them as um, a force to make you better rather than an annoying voice on your phone or on your screen and help them help you. 
That is wonderful and very practical advice. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jacqueline. Thank you again to Margaret for joining me on this episode. And thank you for tuning into The Lead. I'm your host, Jacqueline Gannon. Our executive producer is Charlotte Barnum, and this show is supported by the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on X, formerly Twitter. We are at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.